Acts chapter 2, we will read it in excerpts, you see. Starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then jumping to verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah, or Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, though you said they were, are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, like 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs on the earth, below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Something that the summer allowed for us as a family to do was to have more uh, than usual or more than normal movie nights. And so we watched various movies this summer. And the theme of the summer, it seems, uh, upon further reflection, which are always good things to reflect about, right? Um, We really got into a lot of the Avenger films this summer. Um, I gather all of you to one degree or another would have some familiarity with these super heroic films that um, honestly, thematically, and how they all fit together, at least to me, is quite confusing. Um, And some of these old characters that we've known for a long time from Marvel uh, get meshed together with these new characters, and some characters are part human, and some uh, are, you know, not human at all, and others of them are, you know, have this power, and others of them this. But anyway, the way they mold all these together is pretty compelling, Um, and I'm sure that all the kids that are here uh, could enlighten all of us on more of the profundities and, you know, the explanation of these Avenger movies. We watched one this past Friday night, uh, Infinity Wars, and it really pulled together a lot of these characters and a lot of their powers, 
And one of the things that is thematically true throughout all of these films is this fascination with the supernatural. Uh, All of these Avengers, if you will, possess, to one degree or another, some sort of supernatural powers. Well, this idea and this fascination with the supernatural is not only prominent in the Avenger films, the idea and a fascination with the supernatural is present in culture at large. All, seemingly, of our poets, our film writers, our music writers, uh, our artists, um, all seek to capture this fascination with the supernatural, even in seeing advertisements during now uh, sports on TV. I've seen there's a new series coming out uh, entitled, I think this is the accurate title, God Friended Me, um, you know, through, you know, I guess a text message and whatever. Anyway, I haven't seen it. We could watch that and talk about it later. But what it does is, once again, it shows the culture's fascination with the supernatural. It shows the culture's fascination with the spiritual, which concurs very deeply with how God made us. For example, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts. That God has set eternity in our hearts. And after all, that's what we're doing here on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, you could be anywhere else this morning. Culturally speaking, there are plenty more desirable places to be this morning than sitting in a plastic chair in a gym in a church plant, right? But your presence here, to one degree or another, captures this idea that God has set eternity in your heart. Your presence here captures this idea that you are drawn by that which is spiritual. And by the way, while organized religion is on the decline throughout the Western world, and as a side note, I would say, even though it's not good that that's true, it's declining for good reasons, as in, like, it's organized religion's own fault in many ways, that it's declining, but that's for another discussion. But in the midst of the uh, organized religion declining, spirituality in a postmodern age is on the increase. The interest in that which is spiritual culturally is on the increase, and that's what you're doing here, right? Like if church was seeking to mimic other community organizations or church was seeking to mimic a, a neighborhood club or some other you know, institution that you're a part of, then why bother? I mean, we are all here because we're looking for something distinctive. We are all here because we want something to be different. And I've said that before with regard to our worship. We really do desire our liturgy and our worship to be approachable. Yet at the same time, we want it to be distinctive. It's, it's our desire and goal for you to participate in aspects of worship on a Sunday morning that actually feel utterly different than anything else you do throughout the week. And I think that's actually compelling. I understand that some churches see that as unapproachable and not a way to reach people. Just the more I dialogue with people, and even especially non-Christians, there is this sense, there is this longing for what C.S. Lewis would refer to as the transtemporal. Everybody has a longing for the trans-temporal, 
There is this innate spirituality and longing for the supernatural because God has created eternity in our hearts. Furthermore, we live in a spiritual world. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our fight is not against flesh and blood. But, and listen to this, we just don't talk about these things that much. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's a little outside of our normal daily thought life. But God is saying, this is the reality. Why do I say all this to begin today? Because we get to talk about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is something that is elusive to people inside and outside the church. And I wanted to, before we start talking about the person of the Godhead referred to as the Holy Spirit, to capture this idea that we are two spiritual beings and we have a longing for the spiritual, we have a longing for the transtemporal to set the stage for our introduction into becoming more familiar with the person of God known as the Holy Spirit. So the Wizard of Oz is a fascinating story and film in its own right. It's actually known, whether you believe this or not, uh, subjectively. Objectively, is one of the greatest films ever made on a bunch of different levels. Um, but I've always found the Wizard of Oz a little creepy. Um, and I've seen Wicked as well on Broadway. And in some ways, they take the creepiness of the Wizard of Oz and make it more accessible. And I really love Wicked. Um, in some ways more than the actual Wizard of Oz. But I've always, especially as a kid, uh, and I don't know if you had this experience as well, and I don't know if your kids have seen it, but there's this creepiness to the Wizard of Oz uh, to me. But I guess that's part of the fascination with it and part of what goes on in there. But in addition to the creepiness, and I'll get back to that in just a minute, you know, the whole story is built around this idea and this journey to go see the Wizard of Oz. Right? It's this overarching kind of meta-theme and meta-narrative, like, who is this wizard of Oz? Like, larger than life, wizard of Oz. We're off to see the wizard of Oz. And then, lo and behold, we all know that when they get to see the wizard of Oz, and when the veil is removed, it's just a normal person, like a middle-aged man, is the wizard of Oz. And I can't help but to think when we say or we talk about the Holy Spirit, there is this disconnected, um, almost super spiritual, like not good spiritual, but super spiritual idea and reality of the Holy Spirit. And we have no way to connect. We have no way to understand. In fact, the Holy Spirit has been so mystified and mystical to us that we lack any personal connection or understanding with who the Holy Spirit actually is. And while the Holy Spirit is something much more than a middle-aged man behind a veil, the Holy Spirit, not dissimilar to the Wizard of Oz, is a real person. A person of the Godhead. And so my overarching goal this morning as we contemplate from Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit, is just on one level to demystify and to personalize this person 
of God. But then on, the, on another level to what I began with, to let us leave with this appropriate sense of awe. And this appropriate sense, maybe not so much of confusion, but this appropriate sense of that is beyond us. That is beyond me. And so when we look this morning at this and we look about the Holy Spirit, what we are doing unapologetically is theology. C.S. Lewis said this at the beginning of book three in Mere Christianity. Everyone has warned me to tell you, not to tell you what I'm going to tell you in this last book. They all say the ordinary reader or worshiper doesn't want theology. Give him plain practical religion. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. Theology simply means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him which are available. Another way to say it would be this. I don't want to talk about theology. I just want to talk about Jesus. Okay, when we start talking about Jesus, you know what we're doing? Theology. It's unavoidable. So this morning, unapologetically, we're doing theology. We want to have the clearest, most accurate understanding of who God is, particularly the clearest, most accurate understanding in the brief time we have left on who the Holy Spirit is. And the Holy Spirit is couched within this larger concept of God called the Trinity. Which, once again, this is a place where we can demystify on one level, and on another level, we can just bow in faith to the mystery that we worship, or that the God of the Bible is one God manifested in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are ways that can lead us to a deeper understanding of this concept and this idea called the Trinity. While on the other hand, we do have finite minds. While there is eternity built into our hearts, there's a sense where we can't understand eternity. But maybe through our study this morning and throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which speaks about the Spirit often. We even sang this morning the song entitled the Trinity Song to have a better understanding that God is one substance manifested in three persons. One analogy of this, and it's hard to find analogies, honestly, uh, that are, well, no analogy is perfect and no illustration is comprehensive, but when we wade into the deep waters of the Trinity, um, it gets even more complex. But one way to maybe make it a little more accessible to all of us would be this. My name is Brent Harriman. I'm one person. Brent Harriman, one person. I have three primary relational roles in my life. I'm a son, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. Those are three different roles that I manifest in my life. Three different roles that are not incongruent with one another, yet do have distinctive responsibilities and callings that go with each role. Yet at the end of the day, there's just one me, the Trinity. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed tells us, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who is preceded by the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who is spoken by the prophets. Did this last week, did it again this week. 
um, a longer introduction. Um, now, let's delve in a little more detail to Acts 2. And to be candid with you, there's so much information in Acts 2, that's why I did not read the whole text. There's so many rabbit trails we could chase in Acts 2 that would be worthy discussions uh, in other settings. Things like modern day speaking in tongues, prophecy, fire, this and that and the other. And I thought about that, and I know all the answers, by the way, to all those things. So it's very easy for me to unpack that for you this morning. However, of course I'm kidding. Um, I just thought, you know, if we can leave with a clearer idea generally of the Holy Spirit, if we can leave knowing and speaking of the Holy Spirit as a person and not a thing, if we could, I don't know, pray specifically in our lives to the Holy Spirit, I think it would have been a worthy endeavor. So my goal this morning, honestly, is pretty meager. Uh, But I felt like I had to lead to the goal with this idea of spirituality and unapologetically doing theology. So what's going on in Acts 2? God is pouring His Holy Spirit upon the flesh of all people. Two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? Overall, Acts 2 is about God pouring out part of Him, part of His person, named the Holy Spirit upon what the text tells us and what Joel prophesied about all flesh. So first of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Of course, there's many ways we could answer this, but I thought it would be appropriate to answer it from Acts 2, considering that's our text this morning. This is not an exhaustive answer to who the Holy Spirit is, but this is a clear answer to who the Holy Spirit is in Acts 2. Overall, the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is simply the giver of life. Who is the Holy Spirit in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. One writer named Michael Reeves calls the Holy Spirit the oxygen of life. And you have a partial quote by him at the front of your bulletin if you want to turn there. I'm going to read it in a little more fullness. I think mine just has one more sentence than yours does, and it's at the beginning. But speaking of the Holy Spirit as being the giver of life, speaking of the Holy Spirit as being the oxygen of life, Of new life, Michael Reeves says, the life of the Spirit is not some abstract package of blessing. Listen to that. You don't have, that's not the part that you have, but listen. The Holy Spirit is not some abstract packaged blessing. It is His own life that He shares with us. The life of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Thus, and this is what you do have, The Spirit is not like some divine milkman leaving the gift of, quote, life on our doorsteps only to move on. In giving us life, He comes in to be with us and remain with us. Having once given life, He stays to make that life blossom and grow. You see, the language of the Holy Spirit being the the giver of new life is very relational. It's very personal. It's very intimate. It's the Holy Spirit bringing His people into fellowship with Him and allowing us to share the intimacy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share within themselves. They have life in and of them. God has life in and of Himself through these three persons. And the Spirit brings us into that fellowship. 
Acts 2 tells us the Spirit does this by manifesting Himself as a wind. And when the Scriptures speak of wind, there are times that there are literal winds of storms. And then there are also times when the Scripture speaks about winds being breaths of life. You might remember in Genesis chapter 2 that God's breath hovered over the waters as He created new creation. Well, in Acts 2, God's breath through the wind of the Spirit hovers over His people to create new creation. So Genesis 2, God's breath through the wind initially creates. And in Acts 2, God's breath through the wind of the Spirit recreates people. The wind also fills God's people with life. I know this might, hopefully this is not too mundane of an image, but I think pictures are good for us at times. When we fill a balloon with air, it gives that balloon life. A balloon without air essentially is not a balloon. But when we breathe air into a balloon, it gives it form and life. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit breathes spiritual life into God's people through this wind that is spoken of in Acts 2. Acts 2 also speaks about the Holy Spirit being fire. What does fire do, especially in their day, in their context? Fire was the source of light. Of course, there was no electricity in the first century. And so here, when the Scripture speaks about the Holy Spirit being fire, who is the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is light in the midst of darkness. But what else does fire do? Fire brings warmth in the midst of coldness. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is one who gives us light in darkness. And the Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking, is one who gives us warmth in the midst of coldness. The historic preacher and hymn writer John Wesley was struggling with doubt in the mid-1700s at his home in London. And he speaks about having an experience where he heard someone reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And in the midst of doubt, preachers do doubt, hymn writers, really strong Christians, doubt, just like you. John Wesley was struggling deeply in his heart, feeling cold and doubting. And as he sits in this chapel in London and hears the preface from Luther to the epistle to the Romans, John Wesley said this, While he was was describing the change from reading, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, John Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The Spirit really does warm our hearts. And while everyone here might not have experienced that, I bet there are many who could testify to experiences where through God's word, through song, through prayers, 
There is a warming of your heart in the midst of the coldness of doubt. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's who He is. What does the Holy Spirit do? At this point, we will use Acts 2 as a foundation, but we're going to go outside of Acts 2 to give us a better understanding of what the Spirit actually does. Who the Spirit is, the Spirit, according to Acts 2, is wind and fire. The Spirit is light and breath and warmth and the giver of life. That's who the Spirit is. What does the Spirit do? And I already referred to this. The Spirit primarily regenerates us. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. He brings us to a place of faith and repentance. Secondly, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit unites us. I spoke about this as well, but let's unpack this a little bit more. The Spirit in Acts 2 specifically united the believers together. So they were all together in one place, the text tells us, speaking all these different tongues from all these different nations, yet they had a unity of understanding. And then you juxtapose that to the Old Testament reading this morning. We actually think about those things in our worship. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel, right? Where a lot of people and a lot had gathered together, different nations, different different representatives there, and they all spoke in different languages, and guess what? Nobody understood what was taking place. It was disunity. It was disconnection. It was an absence of God's Spirit at work as these people were essentially saying they didn't need God. But in Acts 2, it's a group of people that do need God, and it's God pouring out Himself through His Spirit in order to bring unity Unity between himself and them, and unity between them and each other. The Holy Spirit unifies people. It should not be lost on us that many different nations, many different languages, all were together praising the same God in comprehensible ways. Did you catch that quote from the beginning from Larry Hurtado when he talked about it began amongst a small group of Jews and it grew trans-ethnically. The Spirit unites us to God and it unites us to each other. What else does the Spirit do? The Spirit indwells within us in a way that abides within us. It implants truth within our hearts. The Spirit uses God's Word, what we call the Bible, to implant. James talks about this in chapter 1. Those of you that have participated in the small group Bible studies this last week, we talked about the implanted Word of God, the implanted truth. Well, guess who does the planting? The Spirit. The Spirit dwells within our hearts and within our minds so that we can know truth. At times that truth can be articulated, and I think you'll find this encouraging, and other times we know things that we can't articulate. There was a British philosopher around 1950 named Michael Polanyi who's pretty fantastic on a number of different levels, but he created this concept that is used widely in philosophy now called tacit knowledge or tacit learning. And tacit knowledge, while it might sound philosophical and a little like, where's he going with this? Follow me. Tacit knowledge, Polanyi said, is knowing something that you can't articulate. 
but you really know it. That's a little bit liberating, is it not? Well, the Holy Spirit implants within us what Polanyi's talking about, this idea of tacit knowledge. Now, it's not that we can't also articulate that which we know. In fact, the Scriptures tell us, be ready to give a defense for that which you believe. And we can help each other with that, right? Because a lot of non-Christians think Christians check their brains at the door and cannot articulate anything coherent or reasonable or compelling. Refer back to the decline of the church, but that's for another day. There's also this sense where the Holy Spirit has implanted within us truth that at times we can articulate, and honestly, a lot of other times, it's just tacit that we may or may not be able to articulate. What else does the Spirit do besides indwell us and abide with us? The Spirit, and this is a beautiful thing, the Spirit comforts us. There's a Greek word that's used in the New Testament, paraclete. A paraclete is a comforter, a counselor, one who comes alongside. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We sing as our song of illumination, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, which is a hymn from the 1850s. We sing two of those verses. I want you to hear two other verses that we don't sing in that hymn of illumination in the realm of the Holy Spirit comforting us. The the hymn writer writes, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay. I don't need an angel vision. I don't need the skies to open, but take the dimness of my soul away. So I I love that when he said, we, we can think about the spirit as such a sensational, fantastical type existence and thing. In reality, this hymn writer is simply just saying, Spirit, I need you to work. I actually, I don't need to speak in tongues. I don't need to prophesy. I don't need to do something sensational or great or amazing or marvelous. What I really just need you to do is to take the dimness of my soul away. I just need you to comfort me. And the Spirit promises to do that because He's our paraclete. You know what else the Spirit promises to do? He promises to transform us. The Spirit actually takes the lead in sanctification, which is simply the setting apart of God's people, making them more like Himself. The Spirit is the primary worker of that. And this is where that Spurgeon quote at the beginning of your bulletin would be good to refer to now, speaking of the Spirit's work of transformation in our life. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from ourself and to Jesus. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives our soul rest. The Spirit transforms us in that way. The Spirit also leads us. The Spirit leads us to wisdom. That's why we pray for wisdom, because the Spirit leads us. To wisdom. You know what else the Spirit leads us? The Spirit leads us to fruitfulness. Those of you that have been in the church might be familiar with Galatians 5. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us not only to wisdom, but the Spirit leads us to fruitfulness. The Spirit also, two more, leads us to healing. So the Spirit leads us to review, or what does the Spirit do in our life? Regenerates us. He unites us. He 
He indwells within us. He comforts us. He transforms us. He leads us. Second to last, He heals us. And we need that. I was struck this week by a story in the New Sentinel that was actually published in the print version this morning, but I saw it online earlier. Those of you that have been around Knoxville a while would potentially remember um, this uh, horrific um, story of these uh, two college students whose lives were taken in 2007 at the hands of evil men, Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. Shannon's dad, Gary, um, fought long and hard throughout over 10 years of legal battles. Um, I can tell you later, I almost was a juror in that case. That's a story for another time. Um, it's called in for jury duty. Anyway, um, one of the things I was always struck by as I found the story, as I followed the story, is how angry Gary Christian's face looked. And you know what I felt when I saw his anger? Not judgment, but I thought that's exactly how I would be. Exactly. But I also thought, man, this, like, I feel so burdened for him. I feel so burdened for him. Like, like what has happened is so horrible. But now his response to what is happening is, I can't be making it better. And then this week I read an amazing story entitled, From Rage to Restoration. As Gary Christian speaks about a rediscovery of his faith in God and the healing that God has brought to his soul. How did that happen? The Spirit of God descended upon his heart to heal him. What's the last thing the Spirit does? The Spirit sends us into mission. That's what Peter did. Peter experiences this situation in Acts 2, and then he preaches this amazing sermon missionally. And what was the result of the sermon? It's what every preacher wants at the end of their sermon. Their hearts were cut open. Cut through the heart, not to be confused with a theologian from New Jersey named John Bon Jovi, but these guys were cut through the heart. So much so that then they were provoked to say, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent and believe and be baptized. And guess what? The church that day grew from 120 to 3,120. 26 times greater than it was. It's a pretty good return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mission and the progress of your gospel in these ways, even through these things that can be confusing. We pray that you would demystify the person. You, Spirit, we can pray and talk to you even now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would become more personal to us. We pray that you would be demystified to us on one level, yet on another level, we would be drawn to the otherness that you manifest and represent in our lives. Spirit, we do pray that you would work within our hearts and that you would work within this church for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.